This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. While you're finding your seats, um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 8, we're going to be reading verses 23 to 34. Matthew 8, 23 to 34. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you all in the building, and thanks for joining us for those online. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church, and I'm really grateful for y'all being here. Uh, it's always fun to meet new people uh, coming to our church family. If you're new to Park Church, welcome to you. Right after the service, if you're here in the building, we have a meeting right in the back corner. There's a room marked introductions. We'd love to get to know you a little bit and help you find some ways to get involved in our church family. We are more, as a church family, we're more than a Sunday gathering. We love gathering on Sundays, worshiping Jesus, celebrating, getting time in his word, and being sent back into our lives. But as we're scattered around the city, we find ways to continue to connect together as community, to grow together, to equip each other, to live on mission in the ways that God's called us. And so if you'd want to be more of a part of our church family, we'd encourage you uh, to take a step and just get connected a little bit more here in the building, in that room. But also if you're online, you can click the new here button at the end of the service and we'll have one of our staff members get to know you a little bit and help you find some ways to plug in. Also, uh, it's always fun on Sundays seeing people that haven't been back. It's officially been about a year, almost exactly a year, uh, since we, you know, stopped our, our gatherings in the midst of all the wildness that was March of 2020. And, and so seeing new faces, fresh back, it's good to see you all. Uh, glad you're here. And for those, again, joining us online, we appreciate you continuing to stick with us online as well. Uh, we need to pray because this passage uh, for me is probably... Uh, I talk often, I feel like most of the time when I preach, I'm like, this is like my favorite ever. And, uh, and I say that week after week after week. And I normally mean it like, like right when I'm saying it, I'm like, it is. Uh, this one, as I look at the long kind of term impact on my life, uh, this passage has a special place for me in my story and some of the things I walked through as a teenager and where 
the sort of like power of Jesus over the chaos of life kind of hit me in a way that was so significant that it shaped a lot of my future. And so I'm praying today that as we look at this story, how Matthew shares with us a story about what Jesus did, and through that story reveals to us something about who he is and what it means to follow him, that this Jesus, that you would come to know his presence with you, and that you find yourself anchored and secure and peace, even in the midst of the chaos of this life, you find peace in the presence of Jesus this morning. And so let's pray that his Holy Spirit would do that among us. Um, Jesus, we are so grateful. Uh, we are so grateful that in this moment, right here and right now, whether people are in the building or watching online, that you've promised you're with us. That we're not alone right now. And I'm grateful uh, for that because of the joy of your presence, but also because of the chaos in this world and in our own hearts and our minds and our spirits. So many of us feel so overwhelmed by by so many things uh, in this season. And, and I know that to be true in my own life and in the lives of nearly everybody I, I talk to. There's pressures and it feels like the, the waves are crashing around us in a lot of different realms and contexts. And so I pray that today, in the midst of the chaos, in the sort of tumultuous experiences that we have in this life, that your presence and your power and your love would become so palpable to us, so real to us through the power of your spirit that we would find ourselves anchored and at rest, internally at peace, even while we feel and experience the chaos around us. And so give us peace, give us hope, give us healing and redemption and freedom and liberty from the things that have trapped us and make us feel like we're in bondage and stuck and do it all for your glory uh, that we would say, what, what kind of human is this? Who is this Jesus? He must be the Lord. Pray you do it for your name's sake. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, if I asked you over the past couple of weeks, will you share with me a, a few of the meals you had? Like, tell me, describe some of the meals you had. What'd you eat, right, uh, over the past couple of weeks? You might be able to name a couple. Like, there might be a couple of the dozens of meals you've had over the past couple of weeks. You might be able to name a, a couple of them, describe a couple. And, and it typically is because they were really exceptionally good or exceptionally bad. <laughs> you know, uh, like often uh, those are the memorable ones. Uh, one of the two. If I asked you to, to kind of tell me about some of the meals you've had throughout your life, and you were to look back over your life, there's so many meals you've had that very few would kind of stand out. Like maybe a special anniversary meal or a special birthday meal or a meal you always have at a certain time or like corned beef and cabbage from St. Patrick's Day, right? Like something, there might be something like that that stands out. But the reality is the majority of the meals we have, we don't ever think about. We just have another meal and over the long haul, those meals shape us. They grow us, they mature us, and in as much as those were healthy meals, they actually give us health, and in as much as they were unhealthy meals, they can lead to unhealth in our life. And I think the same is true about preaching. It's a humbling thing for me to know that if I asked you all, does anybody remember what we talked about last week? That, like, unless you, like, looked up recently in your text, like, uh, most of you wouldn't remember much of anything about the sermon from last week. And that's totally normal. I'm the same. I'm the same. Like, 
We kind of come and gather week after week, and you've got small groups that some of you go to, many of you go to. You've got sermons, you have podcasts that some of you engage in, you have your own Bible reading plan. And if, if we were to ask, like, hey, describe one of the meals, the kind of meals of God's Word, as you've feasted on God's Word for some of you, you're just starting to get into God's Word. Some of you have been feasting on His Word for a long time. Very few times in God's Word, very few sermons or Bible studies would sort of loom large and kind of stand out and actually be something that you remember. And the reason why I say that is as I look back on the 25 or so years that I've been following Jesus, I've probably listened to over 3,000, maybe 3,500 sermons at this point, and I can remember specifics about a handful of them, a handful of them, and that's just how it works. But those sermons, those times in God's Word, learning from others and being in the Word on my own, have over time shaped me, and, and the same is true for you. But in my life, of the handful of sermons that stick out, one of the ones, or perhaps the one that stands out the most in my life, was a sermon I heard when I was a teenager about Jesus calming the storm. In the midst of a really chaotic time in my life, uh, divorced parents who were doing their best to, to love and serve, but it was as a teenager walking through that kind of experience with people, some challenging things in my homes, that I was experiencing and trying to figure out how to navigate through the world. And, and something about a sermon on this story stood out to me and shaped me so deeply that I never forgot it. I go back to it often. What's fascinating to me is I was talking to my wife about that reality, and we were in the same youth group. Uh, we weren't dating in the youth group, but we grew up at the same church. That's how we met in the same youth group. And the same sermon looms large in her mind. The sermon about Jesus calming the storm. And I've been thinking, why was it so significant? Because it really felt like in my life when so much felt out of control and so much felt chaotic, so much felt confusing, that understanding for me, not just Jesus has the power to calm the storms of your life, that was not for me what stood out. What stood out to me in this particular sermon is when I learned that Jesus is the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord God Almighty. And he's in the boat with you. He's in the boat with you. That reality to me of seeing Jesus' power over all things and his presence with me personally gave me something I could hang on to. Not just in that moment of life, but throughout all the seasons of life when it felt like chaos was looming, the kind of seas of life were tumultuous, and the sort of storms were crashing. That reality of the Lord of the storm is with me in the boat. He is with me in the boat. He's not far away. He's not indifferent. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not kind of out to get me. He is with me in the boat has become for me an anchor. And my prayer is that that reality that we'll see through this passage would be an anchor for you in the midst of all of the things you face in, the, in this life, that you would see Jesus as he is, which he is the Lord God Almighty, and he is with you. And so what I want to do today is a little bit different. It's not the way I would typically uh, preach a sermon. A lot of times you kind of spend time studying the passage and then after you've studied the passage, you're kind of like in the word, looking at the details, looking up commentaries, researching phrases and words and the themes that kind of carry throughout the scripture. And then I kind of move into, all right, now how are we going to 
preach this? How are we going to structure it? What aspects of this does the Lord want us to highlight as we're trying to kind of unpack how this is meeting this church and this time and this space? That's what we normally do. And what I'm going to do today is a little different. I'm going to walk through this more as just a Bible study with you because as I thought about what impacted me most from that sermon when I was a teenager, it actually wasn't a sermon. I've never gone back and looked at my notes from that sermon. I've often gone back and looked at this passage and to see Jesus again in this passage. And so my prayer for you is that this story that Matthew is telling us that's been passed on now for generations, the story itself would become richer and deeper and the fullness of what Matthew's doing would sort of root and kind of grab you at a deeper level so that it is always in your heart. So that whether you're facing challenges now or it's four years from now, stuff goes crazy in your life, or two years from now or tomorrow or three decades, that this Jesus, the Lord of the storm, would be someone that you know and that you can turn to in the midst of the chaos. And so we're just going to walk through the passage. Um, What I would encourage you to do uh, is keep your Bible open, underline things, write comments in your Bible, grab your notepad. Let's pay attention to God's word because it's alive. And I think God wants to help us see who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Uh, The way I often will read scripture, if you're reading with a newer Christian or if you're even just reading devotionally, especially in the Gospels, you can ask these three questions at any passage, and it's going to be helpful for you. Based on this passage, what is it saying about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What does it mean to follow him? So as we're working through that, I want those questions to kind of loom in our mind. Based on this passage, who is it saying that Jesus is? What did he come to do, and what does it mean to follow him. We're going to pick up chapter 8, starting in verse 18, and I'm going to stop often. We'll read like a couple phrases and be like, hold on. And so buckle up, uh, because we'll kind of work work around this passage and through it uh, as we go. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. The reason why I want to start there is because it's going to lay the context for this trip across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has just been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, describing the nature of God's kingdom, the sort of upside-down values of the kingdom, the sort of generosity of God and the peace that he gives and the love he gives and how it is kind of counterintuitively distinct from the values of the world around us. As he comes off of the Sermon on the Mount, out from the hill, he begins going throughout Capernaum, which is where Peter and a few of the other apostles were from as their hometown, and he's healing people and he's teaching people. And and as they're experiencing healing and cleansing and these powerful acts, the crowds begin to gather. And as the crowds begin to gather, Jesus' fame and sort of reputation is beginning to spread. There's this buzz around Capernaum. You've got to meet this guy. He healed that leper that had been on that corner for all the time. The guy's cleansed. He's totally healed. It was stunning. He, He healed this centurion's servant, like a Roman came up to him and called him Lord and, and kind of confessed his authority. And he said a word. And we found out later that the person that was sick is now healed. And then he, he walked into Peter's house and he, Peter's, you know, Peter's mother-in-law, you know, how she's been sick. She's not sick anymore. Like he's healing. And then he just started healing people and healing. The crowds are gathering. And, and something about that we looked at a few weeks ago, something about that, that growing crowd was even though Jesus was showing compassion and healing and love, the kind of growing fame wasn't what he wanted at that point. And so what it says here in the passage, when the crowds, when he saw the crowds gathering around them, he gave orders to go to the other side. And that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum is a sort of northwest kind of coastal uh, city on the Sea of Galilee. And he's going across 
the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to go to a region called Gadara, which is in pagan country, not kind of like Israelite country, and he's going to be going across the sea. That's the context into which this scene happens. As soon as he starts getting ready to go, we looked at last week, if you're, in case you're wondering, what did we talk about last week? It was these would-be disciples that came up and said, I'll go with you. I'm compelled by you. You're healing people. This is awesome. Count me in. Like, I'm with you, Jesus. And he says, one, if you're going to come with me, you're going to have to let your desire for comfort die. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head. It won't be easy following me. Are you sure you want to follow me? Or would you rather have the comforts of this world? And then another one comes up. Oh, I'm going to follow you anywhere, but first let me go bury my father. And he, again, confronts the, the tendency to want to put the values of approval and acceptance and cultural and economic stability above him. And he says, you can't do that. If you want to follow me, you got to let it die. you got to let those things die. Those are the things that, that the kind of spiritually dead people try to build their life on, and it will never give life. If you want life, if you want to follow me towards life, you got to let go of those things. And it's in that moment that he gets on a boat and the people that are following him are all in with Jesus. They're letting things die. They're letting their families go. They're letting their finances go. They're letting their kind of like economic stability and social stability go. You imagine the stigma and the kind of rumors around town about these guys that are just abandoning everything and they left their family and they left their father with his nets and they, they left these things and they get on the boat and they start going and the expectation would be that it'd be awesome. Like immediately leaving those things would be met with this sense of reward and excitement and it'd be fun and engaging and we did it and high fives and we're with the guy that might be the Messiah. And look at what the passage says. Look at what the passage says. It's, I think it's a, it's a shocking line. It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And the expectation, I think, would have to be that following Jesus would be smooth sailing. Like, when you decide to follow Jesus, life's going to get better. Things will get easier. A lot of people, a lot of you are following Jesus because there was chaos in your life. Things were falling apart. Your bag of tricks wasn't working anymore. The sort of like ways and, and kind of means of, by which you try to pursue satisfaction and joy and stability were leaving you empty. And so you start following Jesus. And maybe you experienced that at some point. Like, I thought following Jesus was going to mean everything got better, and it didn't. Well, this passage quite clearly says following Jesus was never promised to be an easy path. In fact, Jesus said it in the passage right before, but here they get to experience that reality. Look at what happens. It says, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. There arose a great storm. Following Jesus doesn't mean an easy life. It doesn't. It's never promised quite, quite, quite the opposite is promised for all who had followed Jesus and he said it moments before this to all who are getting ready to follow him. Are you sure? Because it won't be comfortable. And they experience that discomfort in a very traumatic way immediately. And the Sea of Galilee is, is not like a, kind of one of the Great Lakes in the north. Uh, it's more, it's a little bit smaller than like Lake Tahoe. So about 13 miles from top to bottom, a little over seven miles from sort of on the widest point from east to west. And the trip that they're going from Capernaum, I'm using your directions here, from Capernaum on the northwest to Gadara on the sort of like mid-east is about a six-ish mile trek. 
They're going to go about six miles across the sea. It's going to take a few hours. But this is a sea that most of the early disciples of Jesus were very, very familiar with. They grew up around the sea. Their parents were fishermen. They were fishermen. They had been on the sea their whole life, day in, day out. They made their living on the sea. They were familiar with the weather, weather patterns. They were familiar with how to navigate a ship through tumultuous waters. They are super familiar with this. The ships that they were on are roughly about 25 foot long. And so, you know, if you're in the building here, you think about like from that wall, maybe to about here, maybe 12-ish people fit on it. Okay, but it would have been a pretty full boat. They hop on the sea, they're going, weather looks decent. And when they're in the middle of the sea, a massive storm comes. And it says the waters were kind of swamping into the boat. It says so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. So these waves begin to, to crash. It's a terrifying scene. I don't know if you've ever been on the water in the midst of a storm, but you feel totally out of control. It is very humbling to feel the power of waves crashing against a boat, especially a small boat. Um, this past year, I was at a lake house on a summer vacation with my family. I was taking the boat back uh, to kind of pull it out of the water. And, uh, and it was, you know, maybe like a 15-minute boat ride from the dock to the ramp where we were pulling it out of the water. And while I was going, the rain began to come, and we knew we had to get it out of the water or we were going to get caught in a storm. And so I'm just going. And a few minutes into uh, the ride, a, a massive storm broke. This is in the middle of Kansas. Any Kansas people? Kansas City thunderstorms? Anybody been there? Uh, sometimes they're overwhelming. Like we're talking torrential downpour. Couldn't see 10 feet in front of the boat. And I just had to stop because I just couldn't see anything. I couldn't see coastlines. I couldn't see rocks. couldn't see other boats if anybody else was out there. And so I just had to stop. And then it starts hailing. And I just kind of put a raincoat over me and just let this thing just kind of soak the boat. But these boats have like automatic bilge pumps. You know what I mean? Like they can get rid of water on their own. The boats that, that these people are on don't have that, right? The waves are crashing in. It's overwhelming. Um, I, at a more sobering level, in 2018, in the summertime, I don't know if you remembered seeing this story, but at Table Rock Lake in Missouri, there's these duck boat tours. Uh, duck boats are these kind of boats that can hold 30 or so people and get on, they drive, they're, they're kind of like buses, and then they can just go right into the water. In a storm like this, a sudden storm, one of the biggest storms ever in the region, hit Table Rock Lake, and there were people on the shore and on bigger boats watching as a duck boat was just getting tossed by these waves. This is really devastating, but I want you to feel this reality. I mean, it's horrific to watch and kind of disturbing, so I don't recommend it. But they have, there's a video of this experience of these 31 passengers on a duck boat that gets eventually capsized, and 17 of the people drown. This is th just two and a half, almost three years ago, including many children. It's devastating. And the reason why I say that kind of like heavy, heavy thing is that's what these disciples were feeling. They're feeling the waves tossing their boat and it's about to capsize and we are literally about to die. It's a terrifying moment. It's a terrifying kind of gut-wrenching scene. And, and I want you to feel it because of how bizarre the next phrase is in the passage. But he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. I don't even know how that's possible, frankly. Like, I, genuinely, I, I, I don't know how that's possible. And so I think I, I, there, are, there are lots of ways you could interpret Jesus being asleep, right? Some people actually feel like God's asleep 
in their life. They feel like you're indifferent. He doesn't care. He's not paying attention. In the midst of all the chaos that I'm feeling, it feels like God is totally aloof, distant, and not concerned at all with the chaos I'm facing. Some people feel that. Uh, That's clearly not what Jesus is doing here. It's, It's not indifference that's led him to sleep. Some people will highlight, and I think this is valid, but he's also legitimately exhausted. He has been healing and working day in and day night, surrounded by people constantly. And there's a theme throughout the Gospels of when he's kind of working and kind of ministering day in, day out, day in, day out, that he will withdraw to create space, to slow down with the Father, abide in the love of the Father, slow down with his disciples and get rest because he was 100% human and human beings need rest. He was more than human, like we'll see in this passage, but he was fully human and they need rest. But I think the contrast between the sort of boat that's getting swamped by the mega storm and Jesus being asleep is is communicating something else about Jesus. When he is surrounded by chaos around him, internally, he still is at peace and rest. That the chaos around him does not disturb the peace and the rest within him. And I think that's a really powerful statement about what it means to truly trust in the power of God. I I find myself in my life often emotionally attached to the conditions around me. In other words, what's happening within me is matching the chaos around me. If there's chaos around me, there's chaos inside of me. If it feels like life is hard and there are challenges at work and tension in marriage or difficulties with this situation or finances are hard or there's a medical diagnosis for, from a friend or, or whatever it is, like and you're laying in bed at night and the storms of life are raging out there and you lay in bed and then the storms start raging in your head and the sort of chaos and the tumult is tossing around and you start thinking things like, did I take the trash out? And is the carbon monoxide detector working in the basement? When was the last time we tested that? And what about that phrase that person said? And just their tone of voice when they said that phrase made me think something's wrong there. And, oh, shoot, like, I feel like we probably went over budget. And how are we going to do that? Or are we behind on this thing? Or, or there's that one person I haven't called and talked to for a long time. And, and, and like, all that stuff, which is like, whoom, fl- am I the only one that experiences that at nighttime? No. All right, some hands in the room, some hands in homes, guaranteed. Uh, We feel chaos inside of us, and we feel attached to the conditions around us. Jesus, his internal peace was not attached to his external circumstances. Because he understood who he was, and he understood who the Father was. And because of that, even in the chaos, he was at peace and at rest. Now, that's hard for us, and it was hard for the disciples. So I thoroughly resonate with the disciples when they run to Jesus and wake him up and cry out, save us, Lord, we are dying. We are dying. Wake up, do something, mayday, mayday. We followed you. We went all in with you. We got on the boat. We said bye to our family. We didn't even go back to bury him. And we said, discomfort, fine, but this is more than discomfort. This is more than no pillow at night. This is the boat is about to sink. Right? Like, you can get a kind of a bad rap for the disciples. Like, imagining that Jesus' response is like, you dummies, don't you have faith? That's not his response. It is entirely reasonable for the disciples to be terrified in this moment. If you're imagining yourself, again, in a scenario like this, like the duck boat type thing, this is a terrifying reality. It's a terrifying. So they cry out to him, which is powerful. They understand something about who he is. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. But their anticipation is, we're about to die. Do something. 
do something. And here's what he says, and this is what I think is stunning. It says, and, and he said to them, waves still crashing. The way Matthew tells the story is he hasn't calmed the storm yet. He hasn't spoke peace over the waters yet. Waves are crashing. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? There's some debate about the tone that Jesus had here. Um, Some people think it's a firm rebuke to the disciples. It's rebuking them. You've just seen me do all these miracles, and you still don't believe. Why are you afraid, O you teeny faith people? Why is your faith so small? You should know better. Don't you believe me? I don't think that was his tone at all. And part of the reason why I I don't think that's his tone is he's going to rebuke something in the passage. It just won't be the people in the boat with him. It never says that he rebukes the people in the boat. It says he asks them a question. Why are you afraid? What is causing this fear from within you? And then he refers to to them with, it's a one word in the Greek, and it's oligopistoi, which is this sort of compound word for oligos, and pistis, which is little faith ones, but he's combined it together and used it as a way to describe them in this sort of like, oh, you little faith ones. And he will only use this phrase throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew for his disciples. The people that are following him, the people that are learning who he is, and he refers to them as little faith ones. So the image I had as I was thinking about this is as like a father or a mother, and you've got little kids that kind of wake up in the middle of the night, and they come up, and they're scared, and, uh, and you think, hey, like, don't you know monsters aren't real? Haven't I already told you they're not real? Turn on the lights. We've already talked about this. Like, you know this stuff. You know nothing's in your closet. We were just there five minutes ago. You know it's not under your bed. What's wrong with you? Is that what we do to our children? No. Like, you get it. They're kids. They're learning life. They, they, you're not like, we talked about that. That's the creaky door. That's that board. We walk on that upstairs. You hear it. Like, we don't, we don't do that. We walk them through it with love and with compassion because they are currently small, small kids that are just early on their journey of learning about life. And I think that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking about how the Lord cares for the birds and he cares for the fields. Is he not also going to care for you, oh, you little faith ones? Not, oh, you little faith ones. Don't you know he cares for you? That doesn't feel like, like a tone that makes sense of the compassion that he's showing. So the idea of like saying, hey, you're on your journey. Things like this might terrify you. Do you know that people that are further on their journey with Jesus might be far less afraid by the circumstances that right now terrify you? That's the journey of faith. That's the journey of maturing faith in who Christ is as you build up a sort of resume of your experiences with God, the things that he's given you peace in, the things that he's redeemed, the situations that felt impossible, that moment where you felt you were at your wit's end with this relationship or with one of your children or in your marriage or, or through work and it just felt like, how can I even get through this? How can I even get, get past this? Or in the world itself, when you're kind of in these moments that feel like everything seems to be fractured and divided, how could we ever get through this? That if you endure with faith in Christ through a year like 2020, your faith will be stronger in 2021, 2022. 
that the generation of Christ followers now, now have this experience of watching God meet with them and care for them, even through the pain, even through the losses, even through the chaos, even through the storm, even through the divisions, even through the heartaches and breaks that we've experienced. When you walk with Jesus and you find over years, wow, those things, watching the way he redeemed that and watching the way he healed that and watching the way he comforted me in that loss and watching the way he gave me peace in that chaotic time, makes me trust him more, and my oh little faithness, my, my little faith is growing. And that's what will happen for the disciples to the point where these ones that are just learning who he is will be the ones who lay down their lives to tell the whole world exactly who he is. They'll be the ones going from city to city and nation to nation saying, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's risen from the dead. Turn to him for life. And they'll die for that because their faith grew through experiences like this. So he's building up their faith even in the moment. And so he speaks to them to, to grow their faith, and then he shows them his power and his identity. It says this, Then he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. He stood up, and he spoke peace over the chaos. And everything settled down, under the sound of his voice. That he speaks tranquility, he speaks peace, he speaks calm over the chaotic waters. And the disciples have this question that I think is interesting. They say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's interesting to me uh, that Matthew uses the phrase rebuked, that he rebuked the winds and the sea. Part of the reason why it's interesting is it's acknowledging something that I don't have a lot of time to get into today, but we've talked about it in the past, is the reality that even behind the sort of chaos in this world, behind the brokenness in the, in the world, even behind natural brokenness and natural disasters, there are spiritual realities at play. The Bible isn't sort of like contradictory of science. The Bible affirms science, and so scientists can study weather patterns. Scientists, and should, study meteorology. Thank God we knew that the big snowstorm was coming. They pretty much nailed it, even though we thought they were wrong on Saturday. We're like, Saturday, we're like, come on, you know? And then Sunday, we're like, yeah, yeah, 27 inches, you know? Uh, there's that. I guess you're smart. I guess science is real. Um, and, uh, and so, like, right, you should study that stuff. You should study neuroscience, learn how brain pathways work and how kind of chemical imbalances can affect emotions. You should study physiology and the body to learn how disease works and cancer and work to find ways to bring redeeming methods and practices and medicines into those things. We should learn that stuff. You should learn about the stars and the moon and planets and galaxies. We should explore Mars. Like, we should do it. This is the Father's universe, and we should learn about it and engage in it and marvel. Science isn't at odds with God. And yet, science also doesn't have permission to push God out or switch spiritual realities out as if material world, tangible material things are the only things that exist. There are realities at play in this world that, that you feel in your own life, that you've experienced, that you see around us, that there are forces of evil that are set against human beings living as we're designed to live. And that's been from the get-go in the Garden of Eden. Spiritual forces of darkness saying, turn this way. And when human beings turn that way and reject the reign of God, under the influence of spiritual forces, not blaming them, we have our own culpability, 
but there are influences and temptations and lies and deception that are at play. The whole world, including the created order, is cursed. And so the chaos of a storm that rages and kills 17 people or a snowstorm that brings beautiful things but also painful experiences and realities or hurricanes, there are forces of darkness that are connected to these things. And over all of it, there's a God who can say, enough. Done. Be still. Be still. And when they see, the disciples see Jesus' power over the chaos, they're stunned. They're stunned. Why are they stunned? Because there is someone that they're familiar with that had power over the chaotic waters. In fact, their whole history is full of these experiences of God doing stunning things through and out of chaotic waters. The creation story itself is a story of the world being filled with chaotic waters and the creator God of the universe saying, let there be, and he creates life out of the waters. And then the story moves on when they reject his reign and they turn from the flourishing life of his kingdom. It's like the chaotic waters kind of consume them again through the flood. And then the story of the Exodus is the people of Israel in bondage and trapped to powers of darkness that are destroying them and continuing to kind of like overwhelm them with inescapable burdens and they don't know how they're going to get out of this scenario where they're in bondage in Egypt and destruction and pain and weight that's crushing them. And God rescues them by exercising power over the waters of the Red Sea through the blood of the Lamb and then through the waters of the Red Sea as the Lord opens up the waters and brings them through and then plunges the waters back over the enemies, not merely to deliver them from the pain, but to judge those who have created the pain and to destroy the dark powers that were at work against them. And then throughout the rest of Israel's story, there will be moments in places like Psalm 65 where they'll look back on that and they'll remember where in Psalm 65 it says, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, you're the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. You're the one who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. Who's the psalmist speaking about? God, the God of our salvation, who stills the seas, calms the waves, brings peace over the tumultuous waters. Psalm 107 will do it again as people are through their ambition trying to kind of harness the chaos of this world. And it gives this image of these waves that kind of begin to crash on the boat. And they cried to the Lord in their distress. And he answered them out of their distress. And he calmed the seas and brought peace over the waters. Who's that psalm talking about? Psalm 107. Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. And so when Jesus speaks over the seas and says, enough, be still, be done, and the seas and the waves hush and the wind stops, they are, they are stunned. Because not merely does this man have the ability to heal a leper and heal a servant and bring cleansing to this situation and teach with authority, he has just done something that makes him say, my categories are destroyed because the only being that has the power to do what you just did is the Lord God Almighty. And this is the hallmark of the Christian confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the sovereign 
Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. All things are held together by him. All things were created by his power and held together through him and for him. He's holding everything together by the word of his power. And the stunning reality is that the Lord was with them in the boat. That God became a human and dwelt among them and hopped in a boat and was leading them around the sea and they were terrified. And this question of why were you afraid isn't like, this isn't scary. The path to finding peace isn't like, this situation's not as bad as it seems. It's that the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And he wields his sovereign power to bring redemption and healing and deliverance again and again and again. And that's where the story turns. The whole story turns as the, the, the waves calm and it gets peace and they're stunned. Like you just imagine it almost like silence the rest of the trip as they're all like, what just happened? What sort of human is this? And they make it to the other side and they're still a little bit perplexed and they're in Gadara, pagan country. And these two demon-possessed men come up and guess who answers the question for them? Spiritual beings answer the question for them. Look at what happens in the text. It says these demon-possessed men in Gadara come up to him and they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. What's powerful is that these demons, these spiritual beings, understand exactly who he is, and they understand the power he has, and they understand what he's come to do. That Jesus isn't here just to calm the storms of your life. Jesus is here to drive out darkness to defeat the chaos of this world, to defeat the spiritual powers of darkness, and ultimately to redeem everything that's been broken through Satan's lies, humanity's sin, and all of the brokenness that has ensued. He has come to speak calm and peace over the waters, to redeem people from the powers of darkness, to heal people of their diseases, and ultimately, through his death on the cross, to forgive us of our sins. And it is through his death on the cross that we have this astounding assurance that not only is the God of the universe with us, not only is the Lord with us, but he loves us. He loves us. How do we know? Well, if God didn't withhold his own son, how would he not also graciously with him give us all things? If, if Jesus laid down his life for us to express the Father's love for us, then why are we so afraid when we know that the God of the universe is with us, the God of the universe loves us, and the God of the universe is wielding his power to bring restoration and healing to everything that's been broken. My prayer for us is that when storms overwhelm us and crush us, that story, that truth, that Jesus, that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Lord is with me would anchor you and give you peace and assurance and a steady heart in the midst of the chaos that we face in the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we need you now. We need your care and your compassion to guide us and lead us, but also we need you to help us to trust in your power. And so we pray you'd pour out grace on this moment and that your spirit would speak to us in the tumultuous moments of our life, the scenarios we face, the hardship that's going on around us, and that you would 
Bring us peace as we consider your presence in the midst of the storm. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.